Today's podcast was recorded on Sunday, November 6th, 2016 at Family of Christ. Pastor Dyer continues in his teaching series, Being the Church. For more information about our church, check us out at www.focs.net. Pastor David Dyer, senior pastor here at Family of Christ Lutheran Church, and we are glad to have you here. We're excited that you are here to worship our holy God this morning. We're going to be in 1 Timothy, so if you brought your Bible, if you're going to open your phone app or iPad, go ahead and do that now. We're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 4. What a week, right? I mean, gosh, where has the University of Colorado come out of? I mean, they're winning games left and right like they know what their business is. And my goodness, uh, Nebraska sure seems to have fallen off yesterday. Gosh, I can't help but mm, stick it to any former Big 8 lovers over there. No, my Oklahoma State Cowboys doing very well. And by gosh, I think one of the biggest sports stories of forever, right? The Cleveland Indians lost. <laughs> no, no, it's that the Cubbies won, right? Any Cubbies fans? Ah, uh, see, everybody likes a lovable loser. And now you have to root for Cleveland if that's what you want. First Timothy chapter 4. Paul writes to Timothy, a young pastor, and he encourages him. He says to this young pastor, he says, hey, don't be wondering, don't be worrying, and don't be focused on what is going on in the world around you. Well, it doesn't matter how your sports teams are doing. It doesn't really matter uh, that, you know, this next Tuesday everybody's taking off work and everyone's going to vacation and there's nothing really big or important going on in society this next Tuesday. I mean, you know you've already all turned in your your." your votes, your ballots, and so it's, like, it's just not that big a deal, right? I mean, this next Tuesday is just not that big a deal. The problem is, is that the world says it's a great big deal, and truth be told, there are a lot of Christians who go, oh my gosh, I mean, I, I swear, if, if whatever happens, if I think it's going to happen, the world is over, and Jesus is coming back. I mean, like, it is the final thing, right? Like, it's the final straw that whoever's elected president or whatever ballot measures pass, as if that is going to be the thing that brings Jesus back in. Here's the problem. There have been plenty of elections in the centuries since Jesus went to be at God's right side. And I'm pretty sure God is not phased by who is in office. Today, we celebrate in the church, in the church calendar, we celebrate All Saints Day. Historically, All Saints Day is a time of the year that kind of winds down the year. And what happens as we wind down the year, what we have a tendency to do is to remember, to hearken back, to say, what happened over this past year? A lot of churches have used this time They speak the names of the members who have died in the congregation. A friend of mine uh, has a a friend who's an Episcopal priest, and in that congregation today, 
they are saying the names of the members that died, and it totals 108. We've had four members die this year. Probably the difference between a pretty young congregation and a fairly old congregation. But why do we remember? What is the point? If All Saints Day is about remembering, then what we remember is the good stuff, right? The saints that went before us, the people in the faith that encouraged us, the people in the faith that said, this is how you live, and it doesn't matter what the world thinks or does. These are the grandmas and the grandpas that around voting time go, they simply bow their head, they ask for God's blessing, and they fill in their circles, and they don't waste time kvetching, and they don't waste time worrying, and they don't waste time on things in comparison that do not matter to the holy word of God. Now, this is where we're going to hear this because Paul is going to get all over Timothy, and I think it's uh, part for us, too, to be gotten all over because I know there are people that have looked at that ballot book explaining all of the candidates and explaining all of the things. They've spent more hours on that little voter registration book, right, figuring out those things than they have in the Word of God the entire year. And Paul's going to go, shame on us. Shame on us for worrying. Shame on us for, for being so unbelieving, unholy, and unbiblical. Shame on us. Now, where does this idea come from for the saints that have gone before us? This comes from Hebrews chapter 12. No need to turn there. It's not going to be up on the screen. Just listen to these words. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us keep our. Uh, uh, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. Let us consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that we will not grow weary or lose hope. You see, when the writer of the Hebrews starts that out, he says, therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, he's referring to chapter 11, the great faith hall of fame. And the biggies are listed, right? I mean, Moses and David, women from the Old Testament that were faithful to their calling, men who were prophets and proclaimed the word of the Lord. All over, chapter 11 is, woohoo! you want to know what the big guys are. You want to know who should be on the top 10 at the end of the weekend. It's these people. And so chapter 12 says, therefore, since we're surrounded by all of the saints that went before, all of the people who did really incredible and big things, man, that's who we should be focused on and that's who we should be encouraged by. This is what Paul is to Timothy. He's one of the great saints that has gone before. He's the older pastor. He's the, he's the more mature person of faith. He's been through a lot more than Timothy has, and he leads the way. That's what saints do. They lead the way. And you, as we've been studying in what it means to be the church, you are called to be a saint. You are called by your actions, by your words, by the way that you 
act, by the way that you drive, by the way that you are at work, by the way that you study, by the way that you use the resources that have been given to you, these are all acts of godliness. And that godliness says people are watching. They're absolutely watching Christians. Because see, they don't care. An unbeliever or a person that doesn't go to church doesn't care how you act to other Christians in church. Well, of course you shook hands and smiled and said good morning. Well, of course you gave somebody a hug. That's what you people do. What an unbeliever or somebody that doesn't go to church says is, but do you have a handshake and a warm smile and a hug for me? This is why we've lost our witness. This is why the world makes fun of Christians. Because all they hear are the Christians thundering from some pulpit of your street corner or at the water cooler or at the coffee shop of how this candidate or that candidate or this measure or that measure is so deadly wrong. And what they haven't heard is your love for the Lord. How when you read his word, it convicts you and it humbles you and it brings you to your knees. They haven't heard that the love of God and that Christ's forgiveness changes how you speak to your spouse. They haven't heard that it's changed how you approach your finances. They haven't heard how you give second chances. And so the world says, really? Why would I want to go be a part of that? They're hypocrites. And so in 1 Timothy chapter 4, we get Paul's admonition, not just to Timothy, but to us as well. The Spirit clearly says that in the latter times, which we're in, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Now I'm going to get on a little soapbox here. I, I love the dress-up part of Halloween, but what I can't stand and it's not at Halloween, it's that I can't stand demons and Satan. I can't stand that we allow evil to come into our lives disguised. That we blow it off, well, it's just a scary movie. Well, it's just a, a silly thing. Until you hear a kid, right, talking to another kid, says, I'm going to put a witch hat on and cast a spell on you. R really? And you say, are you guys just make-believing? No, I'm going to cast a spell. Oh. So you really think those exist? Yeah. Hmm. You see, they don't. And what happens is, is we begin to let these little kinds of things into our lives. And we let the darkness pervade. And we think it's all fun and games, and Satan is laughing. He's absolutely convinced it's fun and games because he gets in. 
And this is what Paul's warning Timothy about. The people have abandoned the faith by deceiving spirits, by things taught by demons. And folks, our guard is down. We've relinquished the ability to see evil in the things that are around us. And we blow it off and we say, it's ah, not a big deal and quit being so uptight. The point is, our guard is down and Satan has a field day. Verse 2, such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. You see, they forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving. Let me explain this. Back in the first century, we had a heresy known as Gnosticism. And Gnosticism taught that anything in the world was pure evil and that only, right, the word of God was holy, that if you were in temple, you were holy. But once you got out into the public, evil abounded and evil was everywhere and you couldn't touch certain foods and you couldn't do certain acts, so much so that the Catholic Church took on this Gnostic teaching in one of in one area that I just, to this day, I still can't believe. Now, some of you grew up Catholic, and maybe you just said, well, yeah, that's just what mom and dad said. But do you understand that an early church teaching all the way, uh, even some priests will teach you today, is that marriage is only for procreation. Now, I know we have some young years today, so adults, grow up here with me. I'm going to try to be careful here. That marriage and all of its aspects is only for procreation, not enjoyment. Seriously. Like, if you thought you wanted another child, then okay. If it wasn't about having another child, then it wasn't okay. I, I've talked to some guys that started to uh, go into the Catholic priesthood. They said once they decided to no longer be priests and they started dating again, they had this incredible guilt. And then when they got married, you know, because there are certain feelings, right, between a man and a woman, a husband and a wife, right? And you're going to kind of want to enjoy each other. And he kept remembering, this, this one gentleman kept remembering back to his teaching, going, no, 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 it's only for procreation, only for procreation. This, this is what Paul's talking about. There are genealogies. There are hypocritical liars. There are people that are forbidding people to marry because you might enjoy it too much. Right. You might enjoy it too much. And food. Yeah. Well, you shouldn't eat this. You shouldn't eat that. Well, I'm, I'm here to tell you. I can read through the lines right here. I mean, meat is good. Right. And, and some of you are not going to like, but so are salads and vegetables and fruits and dairy products and especially God-pleasing desserts. <laughs> and you can pray that those calories just dissipate into midair before they come off your plate and into your mouth. Go ahead, try it. Why? Because everything God created is good. And it's not to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving because it was consecrated by the word of God and prayer. Consecrated means that when you sit down at your meal, 
and, and you pray and you say, God, thank you for this food. Thank you for this bounty. Thank you for this blessing. May it bless our bodies so that we are equipped for every good work so that we can enjoy one another, so that we can enjoy the food that you gave us. That's consecrating it to God. And it, it can't hurt you. Now, again, anything done to excess, some of you are going, now, wait a minute. <laughs> We're coming up on Thanksgiving, and if you're saying what I think you're saying, it means we can eat anything and everything. No, <laughs> moderation, friend. Moderation. So verse 6, if you point these things out to the brothers, you'll be a good minister of Christ Jesus, brought up in the truths of the faith and the good teaching that you have followed. Can you remember back when your parents taught you something from the Bible? Some of you didn't grow up with Christian parents. This is a moot exercise for you. But do you remember when you were really young and some of the earliest things? Usually it had to do in my house with discipline of some kind, right? right? Treat others as you want them to treat you. Right now I'd love it if my sisters beat the snot out of me. That didn't work. You don't get a pass on that one. Do unto others as you want them to do unto you. Or maybe it was forgive. Forgive? Well, I'm not going to forgive. Whatever it was, my guess is, is that you had parents that tried to set your feet straight, that tried to set you down a path, that tried to say, this is the way you should go. You should walk in this. This is good. How many of you ever rebelled against your parents? Just go ahead and just put a hand up there if you ever did that. Some of you are very holy. Didn't rebel against parents, huh? Hmm. Verse 7, have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. Now, why would Paul write this? How do you train yourself to be godly? I mean, we could pop down, we could start doing some push-ups. Is that, is that godliness? No answer, Mike. My friend works out all the time. He claims that working out is as close he gets to God, okay? That's why he's an Adonis, right, okay? Does doing push-ups make you godly? No. Does doing burpees make you godly? No. Matt, no offense, I know strength training for Air Force football is very important, and your job is very important. We recognize that, thank you. But it has nothing to do with godliness. I mean, here's the point, right? That training in godliness has to be in the things that God has set for us. It isn't what we think is good. It isn't the direction we want to go. Training in godliness takes great effort, and it takes great dedication, and it takes accountability. And I'm betting that is why most of us do not train up in godliness. We want what is easy. It's hard to memorize scripture. It's hard to get out of bed and read God's word on a daily basis. It's hard to write down your prayer requests, to pray them every day, to check back in and see whether or not they were answered. It's hard to lift up a brother and sister in Christ and encourage them in their faith. It's hard to do life together when your schedule is so busy. It's much easier to do your own chores and your own thing and go your own way. But it's hard to train up 
in godliness. It's difficult to write a check each week and put it in an offering plate or send, uh, hit send and, and have it electronically given. It is hard. Hard. To call a brother or sister out when they're sinning. To do it in a loving manner. To, to look them in the face if, if necessary and say, what you're doing, what you said is wrong. Training in godliness means showing your children that you sacrifice your own wants and desires for, for the community. Training in godliness means doing things opposite from what the world says and trusting that what God has in store for you is a better thing. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things. Holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. I like to think of it this way. Now, none of us know exactly what heaven is going to be like, but this verse seems to show that what heaven is going to be like is a reflection of how things are here. Just a little bit. Preparation for that. Now, I don't know what you tend to find God-pleasing and godly. How many of you like to hike in the mountains that, that are surrounding Yeah. I mean, this, and you say, what? Hey, there's, there's a real communion there with, with God. There's a peacefulness and a quiet, right? A little bit of physical exertion, and, and you get to the top of the mountain, you get the vista or the view, and you're just like, man, God is awesome. I picture heaven being some of that. That, that there's going to be walking trails, and that you get to, again, in heaven, experience that beauty of God, that there's part of that training, right? Holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. That training in godliness here is reflected in heaven. Now, I, I myself uh, happen to believe that, that driving a, a, a Jeep on 35-inch tires over God's creation in, in certain and designated places is a God-pleasing, godly activity. I, I, am, I am at great peace with God in those moments. Uh, I, I receive awesome joy, and I am convinced that upon heaven that there will be... Dyer is a four by four trail. Go for it. I'm like, God, training in godliness right now for that. Okay, I may be over, overreaching there. But you know what we did this morning? When you stood, when some of you, your hands were raised, right? When you stood next to people and you heard voices singing. When, when we were transported, when the worship team was, was leading us into the very throne room of God. Do you know that that is a glimpse, that is a training in godliness? That when the body of Christ comes together, sings praise to God, that we will definitely in heaven, there will be a time where all believers in Christ are going to be standing, hands raised holding together, praising God. Is that not an awesome thought? And, and there are many that we need to practice that as much as possible here, this side of heaven, in preparation, knowing full well that that's what heaven is going to be like. And I know some of you are going, if there's touching, 
No, no, there can't be any hand-holding in heaven. I'm telling you, there, you're not going to mind it, okay? So you might as well train it up and get used to it now. Just go up right now. Just, uh, this is hitting me. The Spirit's leading me here. Just grab the hand of the person next to you, right? Just go ahead and do that. No, get your armpits out, Nathan. Yeah, hands out of armpits. There you go. See, brotherly love right there. Awesome. It does my heart good. So this is a problem when your nephews are part of the congregation. They get singled out. Ah, I love it. I didn't say quit holding hands, yeah? That was a test. I know, some of you were sweating. Here's the point. You know what that touch is like? When it's from like a spouse or a kid, that touch, it has healing qualities to it. You ask any nurse, somebody's really upset, somebody's really just, just so feeling like they're, they're tense and everything's going wrong and, and, a, and a handhold from a nurse? Or do you remember when you were wrenching your guts out as a kid, right, and mom would come in and, and just take her hand in your hair? Do you understand that that is the power of touch and that is the power of what the body of Christ does and I'm convinced that that is part of the training in godliness is that we are approachable, that we hug, that we hold each other's hands, that we lift one another up, that there is no longer boundaries and barriers that the world says, don't you dare touch, don't you dare hug. And, and I'm not saying get in trouble at work this week. Well, pastor said to touch. <laughs> Great. Half of you will be in jail. But see, you understand, do you understand the point that I'm after though? I, I'm, I am sick that the world has taken a good thing and made it so that God's people can't touch in a godly way. This is training in godliness. Verse 11. Command and teach these things. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. Whew. Now that's a lot to live up to, right? That you would set your, your life as an example in life in general, how you conduct yourself, the way you do business, the way you drive, in love, in faith, and in pure living. Until I come, devote yourselves to the public reading of scripture, to preaching, and to teaching. Now, what's behind this phrase, it's, it's written here, kind of understood in Greek, is that this is daily. Devote yourselves daily, Paul writes. You, you can't just come on Sunday and expect to be filled and make it through the week. Well, but you don't know the kind of week I have. You don't know all the responsibilities I have. You know what? Maybe you have too many responsibilities that are not godly. If there isn't 5, 10, 15 minutes for God at the beginning of your day or the end of your day, I'll guarantee you, you have too many ungodly things. And so do not neglect your gift, which was given to you through the prophetic message when the body of elders laid their hands on you. You know what that gift is? It's a gift of faith. Don't neglect the gift. Don't neglect the gift of faith of living it out, of being an encouragement to the people around you. Don't neglect what God has said before you. You see, being the church means being godly. And if you don't want to be godly, 
Now, now, don't hear me, be perfect. Nowhere did it say be perfect. It said be godly. Well, God is perfect, so by intuition, I can you know, divine down that you're saying be perfect. No, I'm telling you what the world needs is not another supposed perfect Christian. They need a Christian that they can relate to, and that is a broken Christian, first off. That is a repentant Christian, secondly. It is a Christian that receives God's grace and forgiveness, and it is a Christian that is then transformed by that grace and lives a different life. And it's a process that happens from birth to death, over and over and over and over. It is not a one and done. It is not a magical incantation. It is not something that is you here today, and you go, well, I don't have to worry about it tomorrow. No, it is an everyday thing. That's the beauty of it, is that our neighbors go, well, he's not perfect, but dad gummy tries hard. And I don't mean trying hard to earn heaven. That's a foregone conclusion. God's already done that. He's already won that for me. What needs to be changed is me. And so being the church means being transformed. Living a godly life. And I know here this morning there are not a room full of perfect people, but rather a group of people willing to be perfected by the grace of Jesus Christ. Watch your life and your doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you'll save yourself and others. Here's a promise I have for you. If you will stay steadfast in the faith that has been given to you, there will be in a hundred years someone on All Saints Sunday that will tell their kids about their great, great grandmother or grandfather and how they were faithful to God and lived a godly life and passed it down from generation to generation. You see, it'll be your name that is recognized as the saints that have gone before. And that, my friends, will bring a smile to God's face. Amen.